James chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 19 to 25, and while you are turning, there is just one quick announcement this morning. We have a lot of exciting things going on around the church, and we are in need of volunteers to accomplish several tasks around uh, the church, and so uh, you can find more information about how you can get involved with those tasks in your bulletin this morning. Well, if you would, let's look at our passage this morning. Let's read it and we will pray and then we will dive into it. I'll be reading from the NASB. James writes in verse 19, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he is. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Let's pray. Father, as we humbly approach your word this morning, I pray that our hearts would be open, our minds would be open to hearing what James has to say. And Father, I pray that this passage, this text would meet each and every one of us where we are at this point in our lives. May you encourage where encouragement is needed. May you convict where convicting is necessary. And may you challenge us all. Lord, use this humble preacher this morning. And may your words come forth. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. In his book, Improving Your Serve, Chuck Swindoll offers a helpful illustration that really gets at the heart of our text this morning. He writes these words, Let's pretend that you work for me. In fact, you are my executive assistant in a company that is growing rapidly. I'm the owner and I'm interested in expanding overseas. To pull this off, I make plans to travel abroad and stay there until the new branch office gets established. I make all the arrangements to take my family in the move to Europe for six to eight months, and I leave you in charge of the busy stateside organization. I tell you that I will write to you regularly and give you direction and instructions. I leave and you stay. Months pass. A flow of letters are mailed from Europe and received by you at the national headquarters. I spell out all my expectations. And finally, 
I return. Soon after my arrival, I drive down to the office and I am stunned. Grass and weeds have grown up high. A few windows along the streets are broken. I walk into the receptionist's room and she is doing her nails, chewing gum, and listening to her favorite disco station. I look around and notice the waste baskets are overflowing. The carpet hasn't been vacuumed for weeks and nobody seems concerned that the owner has returned. I ask about your whereabouts and someone in the crowded lounge area points down the hall and yells, I think he's down there. Disturbed, I move in that direction and bump into you as you are finishing a chess game with our sales manager. I ask you to step into my office, which has been temporarily turned into a television room for watching afternoon soap operas. What in the world is going on, man? Well, what do you mean? Well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Letters? Oh, yeah, sure. Got every one of them. As a matter of fact, we have had letter study every Friday night since you left. We have even divided all the personnel into small groups and discussed many things that you wrote. Some of those things were really interesting. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually committed to memory some of your sentences and paragraphs. One or two memorized an entire letter or two. Great stuff in those letters. Okay. You got my letters, you studied them, and meditated on them, discussed and even memorized them, but what did you do about them? Do? We didn't do anything about them. We can all agree that if this hypothetical situation ever came up in a business environment, that that type of behavior would be completely absurd and that it would ruin a career. And as we will see this morning, it is even more absurd to hear God's word without any intention of obeying it. Spiritually, it would be devastating. And this section comes off the heels of the previous one where James instructs his audience on how to view trials and temptations that we face in life. In verses 2 to 4, we are to view trials as a source of joy and a means by which our faith is tested with maturity being the goal. In verses 5 to 8, we are to seek wisdom as we endure trials and temptations. And then in verses 12 to 18, James offers us a couple of warnings. James no doubt believes that our God is sovereign and that nothing happens apart from his knowledge and his will. The danger comes when we believe that he is responsible, that is God, not only for our trials, but for our temptations as well. The reality is that God is not the author of those things that tempt us to sin. James says that that falls squarely on you and I. So the first warning is this. He says, do not be deceived about your nature. It is sinful to the core. 
He even describes how the birth of sin takes place. Satan may bait the hook for us, but ultimately we are the ones who will clamp down on it. And it ultimately will lead to death. The second thing that he says that we should not be deceived about is God's nature. In fact, God is the author of every good thing and perfect gift that is from above. Verse 17. And that first gift is life itself, which he graciously gives through the gospel. Hear what James has to say in verse 18. He says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. James wants his audience to understand trials correctly. And he begins at verse 19 with the phrase, This you know, my beloved brethren. Or, know this, my beloved brothers. And we must ask a question about this particular phrase. And the question is this. Is this phrase referencing verses 12 to 18, or is it referencing our passage today, verses 19 to 25? Well, I believe that that answer is both. We grow through trials by means of the word, but we are called to be first fruits among his creatures. Therefore, we must take to heart what follows. This concept of first fruits comes from God's work in creation. Because God created everything, ultimately it all belongs to him. And as a result, the first and the best should be given back to him. And we see this all over the Old Testament. God's people were instructed to give the best animals for sacrifice. They were instructed to give him the best crops from the land. Ultimately, it was a reminder to them that everything that they were given was a gift. And as we see today from verse 18, our salvation, the salvation of God's people, is a gift. And as a result, believers are a testimony of God's power in salvation. We are redeemed by Christ's blood, and in our holy standing before Him, we are His first fruits. And as a result, we must live accordingly. And this is where we begin. First, James will command us to hear the word in verses 19 to 20. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. At first glance, these verses will read like simple wisdom proverbs. Believers need wisdom and knowledge, and we learn best or learn more by listening rather than speaking. When a tiny piece of our favorite song comes on the radio, we are quick to tune in. And after just a few moments, we are then able to name the musician, the song, and the lyrics that will follow. And most likely that song will be stuck in our heads the rest of the day. 
Hearing the word, hearing God's word should cause the same reaction. When we hear it or read it, we should be quick to tune in. And we will find that there is a direct link here to the first part of verse 18. He says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Let every man be quick to hear. If the word of truth, that is the gospel message, is sufficient for salvation, then it is sufficient to speak to every trial, temptation, and sin that we will ever face or battle. Therefore, we must be quick to hear what it has to say. The word speaks to the new nature that has been given to us at conversion. And we must ask a question of ourselves. Are you and I allowing God's word to speak to our new nature? And we must be careful how we answer this question. It is possible to say, yes, I am allowing God's word to speak to my new nature, but not actually hear what it has to say. Parents, you know this scenario really well. You approach your children and you tell them something or you ask them to do something. And then you want to make sure that they heard you. So you ask a follow-up question. Did you hear me? To which from the other side you hear, yeah, I heard you. But then they don't ever follow through majority of the time. I was guilty as well. So kids, youth, I'm not throwing you under the bus here. But when God's word speaks, are you listening? In other words, how attentive is your spirit to the words that are being spoken? One commentator put it this way. He wrote, We might wonder why the ever-practical James does not proceed to outline schemes of daily Bible reading or the like. For surely these are the ways in which we offer a willing ear to the voice of God. But he does not help us in this way. Rather, he goes deeper. For there is a little point in schemes and times if we have not got an attentive spirit. It is possible to be unfailingly regular in Bible reading, but to achieve no more than to move the bookmark. This is reading unrelated to an attentive spirit. And it is difficult to develop an attentive spirit when we have quick tongues and anger. Within these three commands, we can quickly see how our old nature and our new one will collide. When God's Word speaks and it pierces with conviction or challenges us about our behaviors or attitudes, our response is going to reveal a lot. Are we quick to hear with humility? Or are we quick to defend ourselves, to form a counterattack, or to blame something or someone else? You see, the great talker is rarely a great listener. 
And never is our ears more closed than when anger takes over. Now, does this mean that we should never speak or get angry? No. But rather, James would say that when we do speak, we should speak carefully and thoughtfully. When we get angry, our anger should reflect God's righteous anger. If we are going to profit from hearing God's word, then an angry, unteachable spirit is not the way. Both Paul and James remind us that anger and sin are not far apart. And he reminds us that our sinful anger does not achieve the righteous plans of God. And you may ask, what are those righteous plans of God for us? Ultimately, we can go back to verse 4 to get our answer. There, James writes that ultimately the goal is that we would be spiritually mature and lacking nothing. Those are the righteous plans of God for us. And when we look at these three simple commands, we can certainly say that there is practical application here for how we live Remember, James is writing to a community of believers. And it reminds us of the fact that the Christian's life with God is not something that is just restricted to mere quiet times. Community within the body, when it is done right, it is where we invest in one another spiritually. It will cost us something when we're committed to building one another up in Christ, it means that we are committed to encouraging and challenging one another with God's Word. And as a result, it gives us opportunities to put into practice a quick ear, a slow tongue, and cautious anger. We learn to develop an attentive spirit across the board, both in public and when we are at home alone. And it doesn't mean that we will get this right 100% of the time, but it does mean that we are striving to be more like Christ each and every day. So first, that we see that we are to hear the Word, and secondly, we are to receive the Word. Verse 21, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Hearing the word demands a response. Jesus' teachings is all over James. And here we can look back on Jesus' parable in Mark chapter 4 where we find him teaching the parable of the sower. And in that parable, Jesus lists four kinds of soils that can be used to describe our hearts in response to God's Word. The soil of our hearts can be hard, 
That is, they can be unreceptive to the hearing of the word. The soil can be shallow. It welcomes the word, but the word never actually takes root. The soil of our heart can be distracted. It can take root for a season, but eventually is overtaken by the world, revealing that it never really took root to begin with. And lastly, the, the, our soil, the soil in our hearts can be fruitful. That is, it takes root and produces. It produces fruit. And James gives us the instructions on how to cultivate fruitful soil within our hearts. And we do it by receiving the Word. But first, we must prepare for the receiving of the Word. Notice that first part of verse 19. We are to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Filthiness here refers to moral filth or moral shabbiness. This is anything that taints our lives or devalues our lives in any way. It carries with it the idea of taking off an old garment and throwing them out. Wickedness here is a general word that conveys the idea of badness in a broad way. Basically, it covers everything that might be wrong with our character or our conduct. If you have a flower bed or a garden, then what is the one thing that you despise doing the most? Pulling the weeds, right? You can spend a Saturday morning or an afternoon pulling the weeds, getting rid of all the impurities that shouldn't be in there, and once you're done, you kind of step back and admire the job that you've done. Rightfully so, right? The flower bed looks nice. The flowers look good. Things actually can grow in there. But then what happens after a few days pass? You go outside and immediately notice that those weeds that you pulled just a few days ago have returned. And then you have to set aside time and go back and do it all over again. Rinse and repeat, the cycle goes on each summer. But much like you and I can wage war on the weeds in our garden, we are to do the same with sin in our hearts on a daily basis. James tells us that we must have our tools in our hand. We must be continually working. We must be continually removing the impurities within our hearts. And as we fight, we are to receive the implanted word with humility. And the key word here is humility or meekness. Here our humility, our meekness is focused Godward, specifically towards the word. And if the soil of our hearts are going to receive the word, then the soil within our hearts must be hospitable. And if our 
soil is going to be hospitable, then it must have the impurities removed like we talked about just a moment ago. We develop a spirit that simply says yes towards what the Word teaches and commands. And we understand that the Word's dealings with us is for our good. This is how transformation occurs. The implanted Word, it takes root deep within us and transforms us. It brings conviction of sin, assurance of mercy, instills faith, creates new life so that fruit inevitably follows. And James says, as a result, this implanted word, which you have received with humility, is able to save your souls. The daily battle against sin, it can be burdensome. It can be weary at times. And we may even feel tempted to think that it is a lost cause. But here we are given some really great news that takes us back to verse 18 and has implications for the duration for the rest of our lives. The saving work of the Word extends far beyond the day of salvation. Scripture teaches us that salvation has three aspects. Number one, it is a past event. Salvation is accomplished by Christ's work on the cross. And we receive that salvation the day that we repent and believe. Secondly, it is also a future event. Our deliverance is not complete until Christ returns to judge and ultimately to restore all things back to Him. And third, it is a present reality. It is something that you and I work out on a daily basis. And it is this third aspect of salvation that James is concerned with in our passage. He says that the implanted word empowers daily growth. It empowers daily growth as we absorb it and the things that it teaches us. It takes an ear to hear God's Word before we can receive God's Word. And then finally, that leads to the third thing that James commands us to do, which is to obey the Word. Verse 22, But prove yourselves doers of the Word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. John Calvin once wrote that obedience is the mother of true knowledge 
of God. Obedience is the mother of true knowledge of God. If we truly hear the word and receive it, then we will obey it and bear fruit. Otherwise, James says that if you and I fail to connect creed and conduct, then ultimately we are deceiving ourselves. And James is not the only one to offer this warning to us. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 27, we find these words from Jesus. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. John, in 1 John 2, 4-6, he writes these words, The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he he walked. A way that you and I can measure how effective our times of hearing the word are is to ultimately look to our actions. Are your attitudes and behaviors being redirected as you hear God's Word and receive it? Are your eyes and your thoughts being redirected as you hear and receive God's Word? Are your relationships different as a result of hearing and receiving God's Word? Ultimately, the bottom line is this, that hearing and receiving the Word is only profitable for us if we obey it. And to drive this point home, James uses a simple yet effective illustration in verses 23 to 24. 
And this illustration of a mirror suggests a couple of things. Number one, that Scripture is like a mirror to our souls. Just like you and I look into a physical mirror each morning to inspect our physical appearance and fix our our appearance, so we should look at into the scriptural mirror to inspect and improve our spiritual appearance. Secondly, it reveals to us, that is God's word, it reveals to us the heart of our birth. It shows us our sin. And not only that, it shows us the depths of our sin and our need for repentance. The word here for looks suggests that this is not just a quick glance like you and I would do in the morning when we are in a rush, but rather it is looking with intent, both of the individuals described here in verses 23 to 25 are looking with intent, but they walk away with two different responses. Ultimately, what happens next after you and I look into the mirror is what makes all the difference. There is a, a story from the last century that, that tells how a missionary in a village had hung a small mirror on a tree in order to shave. The local witch doctor came by and curiously looked into this object. And seeing her hideously painted face, she jumped back. And immediately from that point forward, she began to try to bargain with that missionary for the mirror. But to no avail. The man resisted, but the witch doctor persevered and persevered to the point where this missionary was finally like, all right, I'll give it to you. And as soon as he gave the mirror to her, she smashed it on the ground and declared, there, it won't be making ugly faces at me anymore. You see, the mirror of God's word does not lie. And we are faced with two ways that we deal with the truths that the mirror reveals. One way we deal with the truths of the mirror is we walk away and immediately forget what we look like. I worked at a summer camp for several years in Knoxville, Tennessee during the summer, and one of those policies that the men had to follow is we had to either be clean shaving or we had to keep our facial hair trimmed. And there was one particular morning that I was in a rush, and I knew that my face did not meet the requirements, the standards that was put forth by my boss. But I didn't have time to shave and to get to work on time So I took my chances and I went to work hoping that I could make it until I got home. But when I got to work and when I encountered my boss for the first time that particular day, he immediately pointed out that I needed to shave and then instructed me to go to our camp office to the bathroom specifically where we had cheap razors and shaving cream. 
So when I went to the camp office, I took care, I shaved myself, but in the process, I cut my chin. And unbeknownst to me, my boss had come back to the office right after I had cut myself. And so he was present for the next 30 to 45 minutes that it took me to try to get my chin to stop bleeding. That amused him. He laughed. I laughed with him. But here's the thing. Each week we had a particular theme. We would finish each week with a program for our children where our boss would tell a story related to the weekly theme. Oftentimes, staff members would get put into the story. And this particular week, because I had cut my chin, I was the lucky one who got to be in the story. His name for me after that incident was Captain Bloody Chin. And you can imagine that the children took that name and they ran with it for the rest of the summer. Some of the staff did too. But the point is this. I saw a flaw. I failed to take care of the flaw and hoped that I would be all right. But I ultimately suffered the consequences for failing to act on the flaw that I saw. Spiritually, it is both foolish and dangerous to gaze into the Word, to look intently at it, to see our sin and fail to do anything about it. And as we have studied 1 Samuel, we have seen this play out before our eyes, right? With King Saul. He was constantly reminded of God's Word, constantly being pointed to it. His sin was constantly being pointed out, but he failed to do anything about it. The second way that we deal with the truths of the mirror is we ultimately respond with obedience. Notice James calls it the perfect law. The law is perfect because it reflects God's perfect character and because it is perfectly suited for life in this world. For example, God gives life. In His law, He tells us not to murder. God is faithful. In His law, He tells us not to commit adultery or practice sexual immorality. God's word is true, and He keeps His promises. In His law, He tells us not to bear false witness. And we could go on and on. But when we follow the laws in Scripture, we flourish. Remember, when God gave the law to His people as they came out of Egypt, His words to them were, I have not brought you I have not, I, or I have brought you out of bondage, not I am bringing you into bondage. He also calls it the law of liberty, the perfect law of liberty, because it frees us from bondage of sin. It safeguards the freedom that He has secured for His people in Christ. 
Listen to Jesus' words of promise in John 8. This is the verses that are on your bulletin this morning. John 8, verses 31 to 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, If you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Nothing less than wholehearted obedience to God's Word will do. And those who commit to obeying the Word, James says that you will be blessed. The blessing lies in obedience, not just simply knowing it. This echoes Jesus' words in Luke eleven twenty eight: Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So in closing this morning, a passage like this calls for honest self-reflection. As I thought about our hypothetical illustration from the beginning this week, I'm afraid that far too often that my response, our response to God's Word goes something like this. Your Word, Lord? Yeah, got it. As a matter of fact, Lord, we study it every Sunday morning. We even divide all the congregation into small groups and discuss many of the things that you wrote throughout the week. Some of the things are really interesting. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually committed to memory some of your verses and paragraphs. One or two memorized an entire book or two. Great stuff in your word. We may do all of that that is in that response, but the key question we must ask ourselves this morning is, what are you doing about it? What am I doing about it? Hebrews 4.12 tells us that God's Word is alive. It's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces our hearts. And it is able to judge our thoughts and our intentions. We may be willing to hear. We may be willing to receive. And we may even be willing to obey what it has to say, especially when it is convenient and easy for us. But what about when it is not easy and convenient? What about when it ultimately convicts you of sin for the first time? How will you respond? Will we turn our ear away or will we ultimately be able to say in that moment with Paul in Romans 7 that when I looked upon the law, I died. But then later on, 
as he wrestles with that thought, he is able to say, O wretched man that I am, who will free me? Thanks be to God. And how does he begin chapter 8? For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit is freeing. If you are already a Christian here this morning, what about for your life? Sure, it is easy to obey when it is convenient, but what about when it is not? What about when a particular sin that we like to hold on to is challenged, either by the Word or by a dear family member or friend? How will you respond? You see, James says that our intentions and our thoughts may be good when it comes to hearing and receiving, but ultimately, that is deception. And deceiving your souls is the worst kind of deception. So friends, will you abide in God this morning? Will you abide in His Word? When He speaks, will you obey? And as we have seen this morning, there is glorious blessing to be experienced when we obey and live like the first fruits we were called to live like. Let's pray. Father, your word is challenging. Indeed, like Hebrews 4.12, it pierces our hearts. And that leaves us at a crossroads of whether or not we are going to respond with obedience or we will respond with a forgetful ear, with a forgetful heart. Father, as we go through the remainder of this time in worship. I pray that it would be a time of reflection where we would lay our hearts open to you and we would cry, search me, know me, convict me, challenge me, encourage me. I'm yours. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.